welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. All right, friends, it's good to be with you as we continue to dig into the letter to the Ephesians. In my preparation each week, what I do, I, I uh, copy the verses and I paste them into like a document. And then I spent time, this last week, I, I highlight it. You may not be able to see this at home um, either, but I highlight the different things I see repeated in, in the text. And so this week, we're looking at verses 1 through 10, but I notice that Paul, he repeats himself a few times. He says, in verse 1, you're dead in your trespasses, and he repeats it again in verse 5. And then he says, by grace, you've been saved in verse 5. He says it again in verse 8. And he begins in verse 1 talking about how we're walking, basically, in the ways of sin. And then in verse 10, he ends by saying how we should walk in the ways of Christ. And so this is a fun little hint for you as you're following along. As you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, you probably shouldn't mark up if you're using the church Bible. But if you brought your own Bible, feel free to mark it up. Um, or let us know if you need a Bible. We'll get you one. You can, you can mark up as well. We've been spending the last several weeks in the book of Ephesians and this uh, just going chapter by chapter. So we just finished chapter one. Uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is what we're doing. And last week we saw how Paul prayed specifically. He had a special, special prayer. And he prayed that the Christian's eyes would be enlightened. The eyes of their heart would be enlightened. He prayed that they'd be able to see better. And that's my prayer. That you today, that would be one thing that God wants you to see more clearly. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And Paul specifically was trying to get the Christians to have their eyes open to the hope and the eyes open to the power that we have now in the resurrected Christ. Paul also emphasized in that prayer last week about the wealth of the inheritance that awaits believers as well as the current reality that you are the inheritance of God. This amazing idea that we not only have an inheritance awaiting us, but God calls us his inheritance. That's our current reality. And so what Paul does, he fixes our eyes on this hope by reminding us in this chapter two of three things. He reminds us that we came from somewhere. He reminds us that we, we are somewhere now. He reminds us where we are going, where we came from, where we are, where we're going. And we'll see what Paul will do. He'll spend the first few verses telling us about where we, where we came from. He'll spend some next few verses about where we are. And then he'll go and transition in verse 7 about where we're going. And we'll see in verses 8, 9, and 10, he repeats this past, present, and future kind of rhythm. The first piece there in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul begins by saying, and you, and you. Just to remind you who Paul is. Paul's a former Jewish Pharisee. He directs the attention of the readers towards the Ephesian Christians, you. Now, these readers, these Christians, were likely Gentile converts. They were non-Jews who became uh, aligned with this new Jewish sect. What is this new Jewish sect called? It's called Christianity. <laughs> Just to remind ourselves, the first Christians, they were all Jews. This is a Jewish movement. Paul himself was a faithful Jew, a Pharisee, a leader of leaders in the Jewish movement. And they see this incredible growth amongst these non-Jews, these Gentiles, mainly because of Paul's missionary journey. So Paul is writing a letter to converts who aren't Jews and telling them more about this faith in Christ that Paul shares. 
Now, Paul, what he does, immediately following his powerful prayer in chapter one, he moves into chapter two by highlighting a persistent problem. Take a look at uh, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And so really what we say, you're dead in your transgressions, is what the version that we're using in our church says. And transgressions is literally referring to something like this, a wrong step off the path. That's a transgression. You're going off the path. Just like when I golf, I go off the path a lot. That's another story for later, okay? Going off the path is a transgression. And sin literally means missing the mark or failing to meet a standard. And so what Paul is saying is that our problems are twofold. We have both sins of commission and sins of omission. We have two problems. John Stott says it this way. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. And that means this, that we have actively chosen to not follow God's ways, our trespasses, but also we kind of passively find ourselves far from God. You might say, well, I'm a good person, but what Paul is saying is, no, no, you don't meet God's standard. None of us do. So we have sins of commission and sins of omission. And he continues in verse 2 saying this, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul highlights two culprits, two reasons why humanity has walked away from life with God. The first culprit is the world. The second culprit is the prince of the air. Now, people at that time understood that the air above the ground was probably the realm of evil spirits. So as he's speaking to these Gentile Christians, these non-Jews, they would have understood, oh, the prince of the air, that's the, the evil spirit. And so <clears throat> Paul's audience knew this prince of the air referred to Satan. So the two problems, the two culprits are the world and the prince of the air. And this is the reality is that we know this world as we know it is not as it should be. It's a beautiful world, isn't it? And it is a broken world, right? This world is not as it should be. It's a world full of sickness. It's a world full of divisions. And it's a result of this prince of the air and then his sons. Sons gets mentioned here. What is mentioned is sons of disobedience. It's a contrast, actually, to Paul's earlier encouragement to actually Christians who are called the predestined sons of God, the predestined adopted sons of God. So Paul's making this contrast between the good sons and the bad sons. And what Paul is doing, he's sharing a lot of bad news in these first few verses about where we came from. He continues in verse 3. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Not a very happy first verses 1, 2, and 3, is it? You see, we live in a world that rejects God in any form of absolutes. This human inclination towards seeking satisfaction in our own strivings, in our own way, finding our identity not in God alone. We're going to do it on our own. See, outside of God's intervention, what Paul says is that we are considered children of wrath, all of us. 
See, wrath isn't just referring to God's anger and his anger directed towards sin in this world, the brokenness of creation. Imagine he created this beautiful world and he sees it falling apart because of the prince of the air, because of the forces in the world. God's anger is part of this wrath, but it's also actually referring to how God is a holy God and he will not lower his standard of holiness. He's not going to lower the bar for humanity, for his creation. That's also part of his wrath. Story goes like this. A man fell off a cliff, but he managed to grab a tree limb on his way down. Then he yells for help. Is anyone up there? And then he hears a voice. I am here. I am the Lord. Do you believe me? The voice said, yes, Lord, I believe. I really believe, but I can't hang on much longer. If you really believe, you'll be all right. I will save you. Just let go of the branch. And the man paused, and then he said, is there anyone else up there? We don't want to let go. See, God's wrath means that he is the only solution to our problem. Some of us are saying, well, I want a different solution. I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to follow this God. I'm going to to find peace and tranquility through through nature and and trees. I'm going to follow Buddhism. I'm going to do it my way. God said, well, no, you got to let go you got to follow me. Children of wrath, we want to find our own solutions to the problems in the world and the problems in our soul. God's wrath means he's the only solution. God must provide the solution. We are children of wrath. That's where we came from. Paul's going to start to transition in verses 4 through 9 to about where we are, where we came from and then where we are, but he's still includes in this section reminding us of where we came from. Because even while introducing the good news that he's about to talk about, Paul reminds them of their past, the bad news, that specifically we were dead, verse 5. And so that means this, that we needed not only some kind of help to get off the cliff, to get, get off the cliff, we needed God to completely resurrect us from death. God found us dead, not hanging off of a cliff, grabbing onto a branch. We were dead. God was on a rescue mission, not just to help injured people get better, but to resurrect spiritually dead people back to life. So not only were we dead, but in a sense, we're like the walking dead. If you go back to verse two, it talked about the sins, the trespasses and the sins that we once walked. We're like the walking dead. Anyone see a zombie movie ever? Zombies, you know, like the walking dead. Paul says we're like zombies without God. We're the walking dead. When someone asked you what you did at church today, so we talked about zombies, okay? You're like the walking dead without Christ's intervention. And Paul says in verse 5, we were dead. Paul includes himself, him as a Jewish Pharisee. And he includes his fellow brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith. He says, we were dead, just like you Gentile Christians, you who are worshiping these idols and making your crazy sacrifices, you were lost, you were far from God. But we were children of wrath too, even though we were the good followers of the good religion reading our Bibles. You get that? We all were dead. We're all like zombies. Even going to church, even going to the synagogue and trying to be a good person, Like Paul, it wasn't enough. He says, we were dead too. You see, here's the reminder. There are two ways to be far from God. Think about this. The first way is trying to be really, really bad. You lie, you steal, you cheat, you kill, right? We all understand. Sinners, 
children of wrath. The second way to be very far from God is trying to be really, really good, being religious, going to church, thinking that it gets you closer to God. You're earning points with God. Looking down at those people. You get what I'm saying? Following the rules and hopes of appeasing some spiritual entity. If I follow these ways, I will have enlightenment. I will have peace. I will have salvation if I do these things. There are two ways to be far from God, by being really, really bad and by being really, really good. I'm not sure which way, as you came to faith in Christ, if you're on the really, really bad route or the really, really good route, it doesn't matter. We're all children of wrath. We can't earn our way into salvation. The Bible says all of humanity is lost, not just the bad people. You see, people far from God by being bad and people far from God by trying to be good have all gotten off the path. We've all missed the mark. We can't measure up to God's standard. We must let go of our sinful ways, all of our efforts at being bad, all of our efforts at being good, and say, I need something else. It only can come from God in Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, here's the good news, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. And so we see the first three verses tells of our dire condition of where we came from and how we were stuck in sin and hopelessly trapped by Satan's power and objects of God's rightful wrath. And now Paul shares the good news of where we are. And he uses two little words, but God. You see, we were dead, but God has made us alive. We were stuck in sin, but God is rich in mercy. We were children of wrath, but God has a great love for us. Think of whatever bad circumstance that you are in right now and allow these words to sink in. Oh, oh Lord, my struggling finances, but God, right? Well, what about my failing health? Well, but God. My strained relationships. Oh, but God can do something bigger than I can even imagine and bring healing and bring hope. Can you have eyes to see as Paul has prayed for you, for me, for the Ephesians Christians, praying that, we had, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened? Can we see but God in every single place in our lives that we're stuck, every single brokenness we see in our community and our world, but God can do something because of Christ in us and with us. Paul continues in verses five and six. He says, by grace you have been saved. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. He tells us where we came from. He tells you where you are, that believers are saved by grace. And this is such an exciting idea that Paul will discuss this further in verses eight and nine. It's as if he can't restrain himself from the idea of telling you that you, by grace you've been saved. He's going to repeat this again. But he says that believers are already seated in heaven with Jesus. Did you catch that? I, I didn't even really see this until I studied this last week. He says believers are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, that's where we are. 
And so the spiritual reality is that those who are in Christ, those who have confessed their sins and, and confessed in such a way that Jesus has become Lord of their lives, that somehow you are spiritually seated next to Jesus in the heavenly realms. It's a further reassurance that we cannot undo what God has already done. If God has given us his spirit to live in us as a deposit guaranteeing our heavenly future. That's Ephesians chapter 1. But we also are spiritually present with Jesus in the heavenly realms. I don't get how this works, but somehow you're both on earth and in heaven now. Somehow. It's an amazing picture of where we came from, where we are. And then in verse 7, he's in a shift to where we're going. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurably, measurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul is giving us a picture of where we are going. Not only that you are God's inheritance from chapter one, but now we are, we are to receive a great inheritance in the future. That's where we're going. I love Psalm 23. I know it's one of our favorite passages if you've grown up in the church or even if you're new to the faith, Psalm 23, David's prayer as a shepherd talking about the ultimate good and great shepherd, the Father God. And he says this at the end of Psalm 23. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. See, see King David, he knew great feasts. Had a couple good meals this past week. Oh, man. David is saying, that feast, Tim, has nothing compared to the feast that's to come. The future. See, the Holy Spirit gives David a vision in Psalm 23 of life with God in heaven. And it's basically a feast fit for a king. But you aren't just at the table, but you're an honored guest. And in fact, you're not only the honored guest, but did you notice in Psalm 23 who is serving you the food and wine? It says, you prepare a table before me. Well, who's the you? It's God. God is the one who is cooking and serving you and clearing the dishes for you. That's our future. Unbelievable. You prepare a table. Now, isn't that amazing grace? See, Paul gives us a picture where we came from, gives us a picture where we are, and he says, this is what's to come. God himself welcoming you home, serving you food. Waiting on you. Unbelievable. Children of wrath become blessed family members. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul, in fact, kind of redoes this whole past, present, and future. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Oh, we love this verse. Literally, what Paul says in the Greek language where it's originally written, it says, for grace saved you through faith, and this is not your doing, gift of God. Okay? A little rough translation. Now, what that means is when you read this, we're not exactly sure what the gift is. We're not, it's not precise enough to know. Is the gift God's grace? Or is the gift faith itself? Or is the whole act of salvation that comes by grace through faith the gift? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I think it's yes. I think what Paul is doing, he maybe leaves the grammar unclear in order to create this mosaic that the gift is somehow grace, salvation, 
and faith and the mystery of how they all are part of the amazing gift of God. Grace, salvation, and faith, all three. He continues in verse nine, he says, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So we see this at Paul's marveling at God's gift of grace, God's gift of faith, God's gift of salvation. And it can't be explained by anything that you have done. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's a gift. You see, the Bible, we know, clearly lays a responsibility on each person, each one of us, every human being, to respond to God's invitation through faith. You can look at John chapter 1. You can look at Acts 17. You are responsible to put your faith in Christ. And if you have not yet confessed your sins and put your faith in Christ, why not today? He's waiting for you to say yes. It is your responsibility. At the same time, Paul is emphasizing here in Ephesians 2 that even our faith is a gift. That God gifts you with the ability to believe in him, to trust him. You see, because we gain salvation not as a result of works, the implication is that we cannot lose our salvation. You see why this is good news? If you never earned it, you can't lose it. We cannot lose our salvation because we never earned it that way. We cannot lose our salvation as a result of lack of good works. See, God looked at us and says, you're never going to make it. I'm going to gift you with salvation. You just need to receive it. So it's never our efforts that got us saved, and it's never our efforts that will keep us saved. That's why it's good news that even your faith is a gift of God. You can't even take credit for that. And so in this sense, God's grace not only offers salvation, listen to this, God's grace secures it. You never earned it. You can't lose it. It's a love you can never lose. You're already seated next to Jesus in the heavenly realms. So listen to this. This might work for some of you. God's not like some unpredictable landlord and you're like a tenant and you're late on rent and then he kicks you out. It's, you're already seated next to him. He's not, a, he's not like a mean landlord. He's like, oh, you were late with the rent or I didn't like, I didn't like the color paint you did in the bedroom or you didn't tell me you're going to have a dog in the, in, the, in the rental unit. You get kicked out. You don't have to get worried about kicked out. You're already seated next to Jesus in the heavenly realms by grace through faith. It's not going to undo it. And in fact, it gets even better than this. Basically, what we're seeing here in these verses is not only is it um, something where God's not going to kick you out if you're late on the rent, okay? It's as if he signed over the deed to you. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you get blessed even though you fall short. And that's what we need to live in that reality of who we are. God's love is never earned. God's love cannot be lost. But you need to put your faith in Christ to receive the gift. He goes on in verse 10, and this points to where we're going again. Where are we going? Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Greek word for workmanship is poema, from which we get our word poem. It's also translated handiwork, translated masterpiece, translated work of art. For we are God's personally crafted and fashioned tool, art. We are his work, and he's prepared good works for us to do. 
So this is what we realize from this one verse. We were created in Christ for good works. God has made us his special creation. The Greek word poema means that you are a poema with a purpose. We are purposely fashioned tool in the hands of God. God has purpose and intention for you. That's your future. That's your present. So listen to this. You weren't just saved in order to get to heaven. No, God has gifted you so that you could join him on his mission on earth right now. And so, and so instead of walking in the ways of the fallen world that Paul describes in the first verses, we're now to walk in the ways of God's good works. So isn't it amazing to think that God has placed you on this planet for a purpose? That you're alive right now with your personality and your skin color and your background and, and, and your history, your giftedness, the resources God has given you, uh, the passions you have, uh, the motivations that stir you each day, that in the hands of God, he will use that to include you in his mission on planet Earth. Some of you say, oh, Pastor Tim, I'm too young to be on a mission for God, or I'm too old to be on a mission of God, or I'm not educated enough or trained enough to be on a mission of God. I'll say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about any of that. Your age doesn't talk about your resume. It doesn't look like that there's a certain requirement except that you know Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you are a poema with a purpose. You're God's handiwork, his tool. So let me ask you, do you know what your mission is? Do you know why God has put you on planet Earth, to serve in, in big and small ways. See, you're not just saved to get to heaven. Instead, isn't it amazing to know that God has placed you on this planet with an intention, that he didn't just want to transport you into heaven, but right now you are on this planet. You're in Carmel. You're in Monterey. You're in wherever you're listening to this from. You were placed there for this season to give the world a glimpse of God's goodness until Jesus returns. You are to be dispensers of God's grace in a world that doesn't know much about grace. That's your job. That's your opportunity to be dispensers of hope. I was on a, on a Zoom call this last week, a video call with some friends from a ministry called Compassion International. And on this Zoom call was a, a young man named Owen. And Owen is a, a black African man from Africa who was one of the sponsored children through the work of Compassion International that does incredible work in communities, helping the, the poorest of the poor, marginalized people. And they're doing discipleship amongst these impoverished communities. And Owen was one of the recipients of some of the training and, and help from Compassion International. Now, Owen's no longer a child. He's an adult, in fact. Uh, but he wanted to tell the story of how he escaped poverty. He lived every single day not knowing he would eat, not knowing he'd be able to go to school, not knowing he would survive. That's how he lived. And what happened, he got connected to a church that was supported by Compassion International, and they provided food and textbooks, and they provided stability and support for, I believe he had a single mom at that time trying to raise him. And he lost family members to death at different times. And what Owen experienced was a blessing through this church for his physical needs and his spiritual needs. Owen eventually gave his life to Christ as a, as a, as a boy, and then he grew under this supportive stability of having this faith community that cared about his body and cared about his soul. 
So Owen is now a college graduate. He's working on his master's degree, believe it or not. And in fact, you know what he's doing? He is a top accountant managing millions of dollars for Compassion International that will go to impoverished children just like him that they could have hope. And what he said on the Zoom call, he said, you know, reflecting on his life of extreme poverty, he said, the worst part about being poor, it wasn't the hunger, though it was painful. And it wasn't the insecurity of not knowing if he would survive, which is real. He said the worst part about poverty was the hopelessness he lived with every day until he got to know Christ. The po- poverty was real, destructive, but it was the hopelessness. And it was the hope that he discovered in coming to Christ. Yes, the food and education he was so grateful for, and it saved his life. Oh, but it was the hope he had in Christ. Friends, I want to leave you a word of hope. Owen is a poema with a purpose. You are a poema with a purpose. What's your role in the great story of God on planet Earth? You're not just here to wait to get transported to heaven. God has given you his Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. He lives in you. You're already seated at the right hand of Jesus. You're right next to him in the heavenly realms. And you're still on planet Earth. As long as you have air in your lungs, you have a job. You're on a mission. You get to be a dispenser of God's grace. And it's fun to do it. So I want you to ask yourself, in a world that is longing for hope, will you see yourself as a poema with a purpose? Will you see that your life matters? Will you wake up each day knowing your pain matters? Your purpose is secure, though, in Christ. Do you have that hope? And do you have the expectation that you are God's representative in a world longing for this hope? That even when we feel like our lives are falling apart, oh no, in Christ, but God, right? But God, but God, but God. God has a purpose for you. So I want you to ask yourself, God, what have you crafted me for? If I'm your handiwork, if I'm your masterpiece, what what small part of your grand plan am I to play right here this next week? You might not think you have something to offer. I'm too young. I'm too old. My resume isn't big enough. Oh, no, no, no excuses. God has prepared you for good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. So, Lord, the prayer is, Lord, help me to live into these good works. Reveal them to me. Show me how you've gifted me. Show me how you've shaped me and prepared me for these good works. I want to be open to your will and your ways, Lord. What purpose, God, have you crafted me for? Because of God's gift of grace, his gift of faith, his gift of salvation, you can have ultimate hope, not just for the future, but for today. Just like Owen, you can live with hope. You know, there's a boy at a junior high camp who explained the difference between grace, mercy, justice. He says this. He says, if you're driving at 70 miles an hour and the speed limit is actually 50 miles an hour and you get pulled over by a cop and you wonder what's going to happen to you, the cop comes forward and he gives you a speeding ticket, that is what you call justice, right? But if the cop gives you a warning, that's mercy. And then... He says, but if the cop gives you a Krispy Kreme donut, that's grace. That's a little theologian right there. 
That's the grace of God. Undeserved favor. What we talk, what'd you talk about today with Pastor Tim? Oh, Krispy Kreme donuts. Zombies and Krispy Kreme donuts is what we talked about today. You know, there's a band called U2. I have to say that for the people a little bit younger than me. A guy named Bono leads this band. And uh, one of my favorite bands, and one of which my daughter Grayson said after playing a song called Where the Streets Have No Name, one of the greatest songs in all of history, she said, oh, they're so-so. Um, but U2 is one of my favorite. And Bono is a Christian. He was being interviewed by a guy named Larry King on his show. And Bono was being very open about his own faith in Christ. And so Larry King asked Bono, well, what makes Christianity so different from all the other religions of the world? And then Bono said, and actually a very long segment, but I'll give you this one quote. He says, well, in one way or another, each of the other religions of the world teach karma. Only Jesus Christ offers grace. You see, karma is the idea that you get what you deserve, right? That what goes around comes around. That God helps those who help themselves. That's karma. That's not Christianity. That only those of you who work for it will get good things. See, but if that were the whole story of life, then God becomes a cosmic Santa Claus. Hear me out. Who rewards the good and punishes the bad. See, but the Bible says that Christ's victory over the devil wasn't actually making bad people good. It was making dead people alive. That's what the gospel says. See, God in his holiness saw that we can never be good enough. We can never do enough to fix our bad karma. And so Jesus himself came, and he died, and he rose again so that we could be saved simply by having faith, not by efforts, because we never could undo all of our bad karma. So Christ says, I'll take care of it. So that is why we put our faith in Christ And because those who put their faith in Christ, listen to this, this earth will be the only hell we'll ever know if we put our faith in Christ. But if we refuse to let go of our attempts to build up good karma, if we refuse our attempts to try to be really, really good, then this earth will be the only heaven we'll ever know unless you put your faith in Christ. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. You know, last week I played golf, which is another way of saying I spent several hours and several hundred dollars to get depressed and discouraged is my golf game right now. I'm reading a book, though, to try to get better. It's a book by late golf instructor and legend Harry Pennick. Any of you ever heard of Harry Pennick? Harvey, I'm sorry, uh, Harvey Pennick. His book is called The Little Red Book. It became a bestseller selling more than 1 million copies in 1992. is one of the best-selling sports books of all time. Uh, but by the time that Pennick even got the courage to show his notes to a friend and writer to see if it had any chance to be a book, he was 90 years old when he had the thought of, maybe my notes could become a book. Well, the friend read the notes, and he said, you know, it might be worth publishing. He says, I like it. And so, in fact, the friend took the book, and by the next evening, that same man, he called Pennock and said that Simon & Schuster had agreed to an advance of $90,000. That's a lot of money for a first-time writer, even today. 
And so the friend met with Pennock to, to talk about the good news. But the old man seemed very troubled. And finally, Pennock came clean. He said, look, I got a lot of medical bills. There's no way I can advance Simon and Schuster the $90,000. And then it took a while. And the friend finally convinced Pennock, no, the publisher is going to pay you $90,000, not the other way around. So friends, though we should have paid the price, Christ, by faith, by grace, gifts of salvation, he pays the price and then he rewards you for faith, not by works, not by effort. He decides to not take your bad karma and count it against you. He says, you'll never make it. I'll take the blame and then I'm going to reward you simply by faith. Do you realize that you need to let go of the branch of your own efforts, the branch of your rebellion, and trust Jesus for salvation? Will you put your faith in him? Or are you still trusting your own efforts? Even as a Christian, you may have received saving grace by faith and salvation, but God is calling you to extend grace to someone else. In other words, you know grace, but you haven't been living it. This week, would you remember who you are? and be dispensers of hope and dispensers of grace until Jesus comes again. That's your mission. God has shaped you in a particular way for the particular time in a particular way to be a dispenser of his grace. Let's live into that this week. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your amazing grace is real, that you bestowed it upon us, that we have a love that we'll never lose. Because of that security, Lord, help us to be dispensers of hope, dispensers of your goodness this week. Show us specifically how you're supposed to do that. Help us to discover our giftedness and the way you've wired us and the opportunities you've given us to point people to you. Oh, Lord, we want to sing about your amazing grace now. And may it flow through it as Jesus shared with us. Freely we have received, now freely we are to give. Lord, Lord, may we be dispensers of your amazing grace. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.